What does it mean to get to the core of rebuilding the core? Should it take months, years? Are the shiny new toys the be all and end all? And is there any way to build in future functionality when the project itself is going to take a long time? To answer those questions and many more, the two Ds have an authority on the subject. Joe Edwin of Bain Company here on Dave and Darm Demystified. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. And Dom Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dom Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. And this week we have a very special guest who is a former client and also a good friend that enjoys good food. So welcome, Joe <laughs> Edwin. Thanks. Joe, do you want to give a brief intro to our listeners? Thank you, Dharm and David. As Dharm, you mentioned, I am a lover of great food and currently in a place with wonderful choices in India, right? Brief intro about myself. I'm currently working for Bain Company as a partner based out of London. I focus on the banking sector predominantly. And within that, large-scale transformations, the sort of co-banking, co-systems modernization programs. I've been at Bain for roughly a year and a half. And prior to banking, I used to work in banks. I worked for a very large Nordic bank for six and a half years, leading their co-banking modernization program. And prior to that, in Australia, with Commonwealth Bank of Australia, where I was CIO for their equities business in my last role. But before that, also played a key role in their co-banking modernization program among other things such as transformation of their front office, digital banking across both retail and commercial banking. I mean, it's hard to find somebody that has probably the years of experience in core banking transformation. So I'm really pleased to have you on the show. And, you know, what I'd like to delve into really today is your experience, right? What is it like doing a core banking transformation? And you've done it for like a really big bank in Australia and you've done it for a leader in the Nordics, albeit, I guess, you know, per country, then they're not huge banks, but as a sum total, it was a big transformation project. So yeah, I mean, talk us through some of your experience on those, please. Could you just kind of give us a view on what transformation actually means? Yeah, as well? true. Because I think the word is bandied around so much. You know, when I look at it, I go, well, that's a billion dollars down the drain almost or whatever. (laughs) But what is it that the banks are setting out to do through transformation? Absolutely. And you're right. I think the word transformation does get misused quite a lot. But often the case is that these are extremely large programs that consume a lot of energy and time of the organization and, of course, capital because they're trying to shed decades of legacy in terms of technology, business processes, and products that have been built on that legacy technology, leave that behind and then kind of start afresh. But the reality for most legacy banks is starting afresh, or as we like to say in our industry, 
a greenfield approach where you're building a bank from scratch on the side, it's not really feasible when you consider you're trying to replace what you have and transition your existing business onto that. Building a new bank on the side for, say, a new venture, a new segment, a challenger bank, yeah, that's completely possible. And some banks have, of course, adopted that approach. But transforming your bank from within, you know, completely changing the way you do your banking and how you serve your customers, that is hard. And that is, of course, the intention behind a lot of these programs, you know, rip apart your old technology, put a new modern digital stack in place or into a digital stack in place. And of course, the definition of what that is changes, you know, year by year as technology modernizes itself. Back when we were doing co-banking in my Australian bank, cloud banking was not really a thing, right? Fast forward 15 years, you know, everybody's talking about cloud-based co-banking. However, you know, a lot of banks are still not quite ready to go down that path. So I think the definition of what transformation is varies from bank to bank. It depends a lot about their point of departure. You know, so what have they done already? Different banks are different states of change or modernization. You know, some banks that I deal with in my current role may have already done quite a lot of renovation of their digital and front office experiences, but they face limitations when it comes to creating end-to-end digital processes because of the legacy core or limitations of the integration architecture. So for them, putting a new modern core can give a step change in terms of that customer experience that they desire to provide, which is instant gratification, which a lot of our customers or a lot of banking customers are starting to expect. So the paradigm shift we've seen in the industry led by the app culture and things that are coming from other industries People expect the same from the banks. The transformation banks are mostly trying to do is to shift from old, slow, multi-day processes to quickly serving the needs of the customers and then putting technology, a backbone of business processes and products that are able to fulfill those needs. What's the kind of process that you go through? What does it actually mean in terms of outcomes? An extension of my further question, which I guess relates to it, is... How has the banking industry got itself into the position where, you know, in order to transform, it's a very complex thing? What is it that's happened in the industry in terms of why this is such a complex thing to do? Yeah, it's a really great question. The point of departure for each bank is quite different, but, you know, you can find a lot of parallels amongst the big banks in terms of why it's so complicated. Much of it has to do with layering of technology that has happened over the last few decades. You know, people have bolted on different solutions. You often find the same bank may have five ways of doing customer origination. Some of it based on customer segments, some of it based on, you know, maybe their presence in different markets, some just a function of when different things were implemented. And they're trying to make all these things work together with each other because the appetite was not there at a point in time to completely replace, say, the end-to-end technical stack that's involved in that particular process. Because it's expensive, it takes time. Maybe they were late, you know, AML rules keep changing. And to remain compliant, they have to rapidly do certain things. Often the available investments get dispersed across so many initiatives that not one initiative gets the fair share it requires to provide the best outcome for the bank in terms of a multi-decade improvement. So you end up with all these different types of technologies that have been cobbled together, which create a lot of complexity. And unwinding that becomes quite a challenge when you're trying to place a new piece of technology stack, which can do quite a lot of many of these solutions in one place. 
The other angle that I see is products, you know, the complexity that banks create by creating more and more products to sell to clients. One of my employees, we used to joke and say that the banks love their products more than the customers do. And, and that's actually true. You often see banks and particular product divisions want to create new versions of everything because they feel that there's a new niche that they can go after or this particular feature a client wants, so that results in new product. And of course, the technology doesn't allow you the configurability that could potentially remove the need to create new parts of the solution or new variations of products that you want to sell are simply not configurable because you know the legacy mainframe technology that runs most of the core banking globally is not made that way. It's a very flat structure. So every product is or variation of a product is a new product. So as you build these products and associated processes, you end up with you know hundreds and hundreds of these things. And when you come to replace them with a new solution, your starting point is very complicated. And right. you know a lot of banks struggle with the idea of starting with a simplification program. And I'm not talking about technology simplification here. Simply you know, take your existing product portfolio, take your processes, embark upon a simplification initiative to drastically or radically reduce the number of products that you actually have in your books that you want to transition to your new bank or new architecture, simplify your processes, you know, do a bit of re-engineering of your processes. And re-engineering is not, you know, adding RPA or other sort of technologies to automate your existing complex human processes. I'm talking about, you know, zero-basing these processes, starting from scratch, Reimagine what would you want to do in this current world, this age, and this era, as far as that process is concerned. And when you do that, that removes so many of these complex steps that exist in your legacy processes, you don't have to bring them across into your target platform. And not doing that makes it, of course, very complicated. So I think it's a combination of you know, lack of willingness to simplify the business, and then, of course, your existing legacy of technology. And then wanting to get results very quickly, you try to sort of move things across as is versus, as I said, you know, go through this change experience of reducing what you have and then start with a simpler starting point that is transitional to the target architecture. Dave, let me give you a very simple analogy that you'll get straight away. Your house is quite old and was fit for purpose when it was built. The problem today is that we have different requirements around energy efficiency. And so, you know, you getting things like central heating and new windows, et cetera, is a lot more difficult in that old property than, you know, for somebody that's building brand new. Yeah, that's really what it's kind of like, right? Fit for purpose at the time it was built, 20, 50 years later, it's no longer fit for purpose, but it's difficult to change with new regulations and the way that it was previously built, et cetera, all the things that's been done to it since, et cetera, it just makes it complex. Great analogy and kind of helps. One thing I've always wondered is, you know, transformation people talk about or banks will talk about refocusing around customers. And again, it seems like a lot of blah, blah, because I'm like, well, you're driving it from a technology point of view, not a customer proposition experience point of view. But I think, Edwin, what you said in terms of, well, actually, there's a need to simplify everything down before you can go forward, I think really makes a lot of sense to me. So now I can kind of understand why you have to go through that process in order to be ready. And I guess to your analogy in terms of the house, if you want to make your old house 
fit for purpose in this modern age, then probably the best thing to do is to get out of it for a few months. Yeah. Just do a super nuts rework of it all. So it's really interesting. Yeah, perhaps, you know, the challenge is the banks don't really have the option in most cases to move out of that house, do the renovation, then move back in, right? The millions of customers have to be served on that same architecture while you're doing the transformation, which is why I said the idea of a complete new rebuild on the side is difficult to fathom because, you know, what it takes to build a bank that is currently operational, let's take any bank that's been operating for, say, 30, 40, 50 years, all the things that they have built up over that period to build something similar, even simplified right down to core you know, capabilities that your customers desire and core products you want to offer is still a very, very significant undertaking, right? And you might think you know, the cost to do that is so significant that maybe you don't want to replace every little part of your architecture. Maybe your payment systems are fine. Maybe your digital channels are actually very good because you've invested a lot of money in that in the last three, five years. So you want to keep those things, right? And this is how the conversation plays out. So you want to retain some of these things, but replace the core. So you are therefore not doing a greenfield replacement. You are connecting part of the bank's chassis, the shell and other bits and pieces of the solution need to remain. So you kind of end up in a bit of a situation where your legacy and your new are starting to connect with each other. What that leads to is even more complexity during the transition or transformation. (laughs) Right. And in all the core banking examples I've seen so far, by far, that has been the biggest challenge. How do you make architectural choices which minimize the amount of legacy integration that you do with your new core? I mean, it's unavoidable unless you do a completely separate build top to bottom. Right. And when you do that, how do you minimize the effort while protecting some of the assets that you already have? Take, for example, the front office. You know, you have a great CRM system you've implemented now. It's talking through APIs or microservices to your integration and sort of into your core systems. You don't want to throw that away, right? You put a new core in place, you transition, let's say, your deposit book across to that platform. Now you have your loans and your transaction accounts living on the legacy core. You have your deposits living on the new core. Those two different systems need to talk to the same CRM, right? So suddenly you have your channels talking to two different architectures. And there is some complexity in that because the CRM was perhaps configured to act in a certain way against the legacy core. People have gotten used to that. The new core doesn't exactly support that. So you then start doing some hacks or shortcuts to avoid the change impact to your employees. And if you're a large bank with 50, 60, 70,000 employees that are using the solution, you don't really want to contemplate making a drastic change to the experience that you just rolled out, say, a year or two years ago because your core is changing. So it's a delicate balance you have to find between the impacts created by transforming your core versus changes that have already been completed and the change management impact that the combined effort will create. Coming back to the point about management changes, I was in one project and I was involved for three CEOs in that project. So uh, it does happen. But the first point I thought was like, the super important one. And still today, you know, and maybe some of the vendors might not like this, right? But I would argue that if you want to be a bank and you're not going to do anything different that you were doing in the past 100 years or 50 years, however long you've been as a bank, 
you know, selling products, etc., then don't change your core, right? My view is the why. Why are we doing this? As you said, is the super important question, and it has to be a big enough why that kind of says, look, you're going to do open heart surgery, right? Is it really, really necessary if you're not planning to or wanting to live for the next 20 years or wanting to run a marathon or something really big, right? For banks, is there a strong enough why as to the transformation? I mean, I have my personal view, but I mean, I'd love to hear yours first. Absolutely. Look, I think, as I said earlier as well, you know, the point of departure varies from bank to bank. The reason why one bank decides to undertake the transformation may not apply exactly and equally to another bank, right? So don't copy other banks' approaches simply because you think that's a great idea or because they made it work, right? You know, what's your reason for doing? You know, reflect on that. We see in our, in our research that close to 90% of the rationale behind doing this is for improved business speed, flexibility, and agility, right? Banks are unhappy with the rate at which they can deploy changes to their products, launch new products where they may want to partner with somebody, and they just can't make that work. So they need a new core for that. They decide that the architecture is not able to cope with it. Another big reason that we see is reducing operation costs, right? Your processes are extremely manual. They've been cobbled together over decades using different types of sub-processes and technologies. And now you want to do a more streamlined, end-to-end, more digital experience, but there's some limitations in the core, perhaps your core is completely batch-based, right? And therefore, to get that instant decision for a personal loan, for example, you know, which may be a real game changer for you in your market, you simply can't do that you know, if your core cannot turn that around and you know, disperse the funds, and it takes two days before that happens. It's going to hurt you. The third reason that we often see is improving customer experience. The end customer experience also user experience. So, you know, Similarly, what are the reasons for you to do your core transformation? And are you convinced that there is no other way to achieve that before you embark upon this multi-year, you know, possibly up to a billion or more dollars worth of investment, which is going to consume a lot of energy of the organization and frankly, stop the organization from doing a lot of other things when you're doing this because it consumes your best people. It consumes a lot of other technical capacity of the organization as well as business capacity. Some of the work that I've been doing recently, you know, for smaller banks, especially building societies, you know, some of them are starting to realize there's an existential threat that actually the high street itself is starting to die. Branches are rapidly closing. This is a noose tightening around their neck, right? Now, some are still pleading, you know, that they've still got a loyal client base. It's a locale-based business still, right, for the next umpteen years. But some are already starting to say, well, actually, no, we have to change our business. We have to be something different, right? Which is quite a big statement. For the bigger banks, what I'm seeing there is they're starting to realize that the threat is kind of twofold. We've always seen the big tech threat of payments moving away. Mm -hmm. And there's the piranhas of the fintechs, right? Chipping away at their business, but really at the core of their products, because things like mortgages, which is the biggest money maker, banks are starting to realize that, you know, when I took out a mortgage, it was a job for life and a mortgage for life. These days, we're switching jobs and mortgages, you know, in roughly about the same timescales, right? So there's no loyalty. And if banks can't, you know, improve the experience of not only buying the house, but also retaining those customers through better engagement, they're going to lose a large proportion of their revenue. 
So now they're starting to think, oh, this isn't just about product. This is about like, what's the customer journey? Oh, it's about buying a house and what's involved. Can we make that simpler? What about owning a house? You know, so this comes back to stuff that I'm doing, I guess, you know, with Ask Comey as well. But it's interesting that, you know, so late on, there's this realization that there's a big why that has to be addressed, right? For some banks, I think they're still struggling on the why. I don't know if that's your experience as well. Absolutely. We advise clients globally, banks of all different scales. And a common issue I see with core transformations or core insurance even, so not just banking, your insurance has this problem, is that the why is not clear or clear enough, or there's lack of alignment amongst the top team on that why statement. And because that happens, there is, through the journey of the implementation of the system and the changes that they're undertaking, constant sort of questioning or re-questioning of the purpose behind this program. Why are we spending so much money? This is too expensive. It takes too long. That's because people don't appreciate that, one, it is a very complex thing. And secondly, you know, the reason why the undertaking requires such an effort to be put into it. Now, of course, you know, you can do these programs in a better way. By no means is every co-banking program that has succeeded being done in the most efficient manner. You know, there are learnings to be made there as well. And banks should absolutely question that and keep fine-tuning their delivery model even during the course of their program. But it doesn't change the underlying reason. That's my point. And of course, if it takes you two decades to complete a transformation, then the why will change. But a typical co-banking program, you know, should not take you more than five to seven years, depending on the scale of the bank, right? If you put the right team in place, you're funded properly, you have the right team behind you, you have the right capacity and the right solution choice you've made, and then sustain the energy to do this, then you will make it in that time frame, right? Get all the ingredients right. But if you don't, then of course, you know, the game changes around you, industry is moving rapidly. But I also tend to say the core of banking actually hasn't changed for a long, long time. It's unlikely to change, which is at the core of its core, it's about depositing money and borrowing and then doing something with that, right? That aspect of debits and credits hasn't changed. So then, you know, that starts making you think a little bit about what your strategy could be. And I think that is also why a lot of banks are starting to say, maybe the journey can be less painful if we do a bit of work on taking things that are not really part of the core anymore out of the core. I could listen to this all day because, I mean, I've been in this industry for the last 25 years, and I guess it's the first time I've really sat and unpacked what transformation actually means. And I know that sounds like almost idiotic, but there we go. So we're kind of out of time, but I just wanted one final question, which is the point of transformation is transformation. And I think with the ability of hindsight, you can say, well, look, What you need is flexibility in terms of what's there, because we don't quite know what's coming down the line. So you made the point around you went through transformation before cloud, and I guess at some point they had to respond to cloud. So how as part of transformation are you building in flexibility in the future for those unknown unknowns? In the future, we might have AI, which has a stronger role in terms of what's going on than it has today, or... There's things like quantum computing. So things that are kind of on the horizon. So how do you kind of build in flexibility around transformation so that five years time, you don't have to go through the whole process again? Just before you answer that, Joe, an example that I want to kind of include, there's a huge payments industry, 
right? And there's huge legacy technology behind that. We all know that. CBDCs will change that. The world is going to CBDCs. What does it mean for banks? I mean, how do you plan for payments infrastructure when you see this? That's an example of what you're talking about, right, Dave? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's exactly right. So how do you handle it? Yeah, yeah. That's the perennial challenge for an architect, an enterprise architect in particular at a bank. You know, how do you craft the right architecture that gives you the optionality that these things will create in the future without actually knowing exactly how they will impact your business, right? And I think this is something that the industry has grappled with for a long time. And if I think back to my early days in the tech industry, let's say the mid-90s, early 2000s, we talked a lot about reuse. Everything must be built from a reuse point of view because, you know, things are roughly similar. Why we have to craft something from scratch every time? But that was a very difficult challenge. And I'm sure that you would remember from your startup days as well. Okay. Building something reuse is extremely, extremely difficult, right? You're trying to imagine all the potential use cases that this particular component can be used for and then build that capability in. Then that often leads to over-engineering yeah. or gold plating solutions, right? So it's a very, very difficult balance trying to you know, take your technology that you're trying to implement now with a view to the future but also account for the unknown unknowns, right? Or some degree known unknowns. And I think, you know, some of the change that has happened in the industry in the last few years has given a little bit more flexibility to accommodate this sort of a change. And that's through the decoupling architecture that a lot of people talk about. And if you build a decoupled architecture where you think about the different layers that will participate in your stack and have the flexibility to talk to each other through APIs. And APIs are not a new thing, by the way. They've existed for a long time. They're just rebranded as APIs now. And, you know, if you build the architecture in that manner, it will at least give you a better opportunity to accommodate those changes that will happen in the future, right? Don't hard code. I mean, this is a well-known fact and, and slogan that's used in the industry, but inevitably we see a lot of hard coding and that kind of stuff being done by people. And so you're locking yourself into a pattern that becomes very difficult for you to change. And then the business says, hey, look, we'd like to introduce quantum computing into our architecture. And they say, oh, well, that will require us to completely throw this part of the architecture away. You want to avoid that. And hence, going back to my point earlier that I made, which is you know, spend some quality time of your people, your best people, thinking about your target state architecture. And in that, think about what are some of the seismic moves that we're saving in the industry that could potentially impact you and how you'll be able to accommodate that. I can guarantee you'll not get it perfectly right, right? Because you don't know how these things are evolving and no one inside the organization is going to be an expert on quantum computing that's also working on these sort of problems. But at least, you know, think about what that might mean, talk to some people outside, bring that talent, information and expertise into the decision-making for your target state architecture, build that flexibility in without necessarily trying to code for every possible combination of solutions that may emerge in, in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point that you made about the APIs because that's exactly Fantastic. what happened at Amazon. You know, they started out as a retailer because Jeff Bezos basically said, I want, you know, all the data to be able to talk to each other, anyone to be able to request the data internally. AWS was born, right? And huge new business, not pre-planned necessarily, right? Exactly. So it's that kind of flexibility that you're talking about. Look, I mean... Dave is right. We could talk about this forever, right? And maybe we should get you back on the show to talk a bit more about this flexibility in the future. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming onto the show and opening our eyes on the transformation. It was my absolute pleasure.
Yeah, it's been amazing. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, really enjoyed that dialogue. Love to be back and talk more about this. As you said, you know, we can talk for hours and hours about this. There's so many wonderful examples of transformations going on across the world. You know, we could pick some anonymous examples of those and talk about you know, what goes well, what doesn't go so well, and what other people can learn from that, because these can become very expensive mistakes if you don't learn from what other people are doing. Fantastic. Well, enjoy the good food that you've got around you. Maybe, Dom, we need to start a new podcast on the last great meal I had, and we could get Edwin on to talk about that. That sounds like a fabulous idea. Fantastic. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Fantastic. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dom Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.